Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome, everybody, to episode 17 of Push Dose EMS, uh, your monthly EMS podcast brought to you by the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I am your host, Jeff Matcher, the Clinical Education QA Manager for Milwaukee County. Uh, joining me for the podcast today, a host of familiar faces, at least voices for everybody out there, uh, System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Pojar. Welcome, Dan. Good job. And our EMS Fellows, uh, Dr. Nico Rendovich. Hi, Nico. How's it going? And our other fellow, uh, Dr. Brandon Drezich. Dr. Drezich, welcome. Good morning, evening, and good night, depending on when you're listening on this. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I'm excited to get into uh, our continuing conversation on trauma. Uh, this month's podcast will be focused around burns, uh, treatment, care, and what happens once they get to the hospital. But as per usual, uh, we will dive first into updates from the system. So Dan, any system updates for us this month? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I just have actually one update for the system. Uh, soon you guys will see uh, an update in the guidelines for some receiving facilities. Uh, some of the health systems are deciding to expand uh, to some freestanding emergency departments. So we're calling these limited resource hospital emergency departments. Uh, one thing to note with all of these facilities that are going in, there's just a couple right now, Greenfield, um, Menominee Falls, and then uh, Freighter has one planned for Oak Creek next year. Uh, these are non-specialty receiving centers. So no STEMIs, no strokes, no ROS patients should be transported to these. Uh, and one caveat to that is, uh, even though these are not specialty receiving centers, they could be utilized for emergent airway stabilization should that be needed. So you can still think of those as a resource available to you uh, in your areas. But other than that, that is my major update. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks, Dan. Nice to have some more resources, especially if we can get them closer to home for uh, access and stabilization if needed. Uh, moving on, medical direction. Dr. Weston, uh, any updates for the system on medical direction? All right. Thanks, Jeff. So first, just to touch on a few COVID trends. Uh, it's good news this time around. So we have declining numbers of COVID cases in the county, uh, declining positivity rates, declining hospitalizations, and finally, uh, at long last, declining deaths uh, from COVID. So we are moving in the right direction, uh, but we know COVID is not over yet. So we have to keep our vigilance up, keep getting vaccinated, and keep taking those precautions. Uh, in other news with our hospital partners, we continue to work on diversions. Uh, and on that front, we do have a couple changes in destination facilities. So uh, for those of you in the southern half of our county, uh, St. Francis, Hospital and Franklin Hospital uh, at the moment are not STEMI or ROSC receiving hospitals. Uh, they do not have currently 24-7 cath lab services. So we'll continue to work with them. We'll continue to watch that. Uh, but at the, at the moment, uh, they are not ROSC or STEMI receiving centers. Uh, and the only other update uh, to talk about is we are seeing an uptick um, with some EMS uh, shortages of inappropriate interfacility uh, or uh, homebound transport. So um, we are working with our hospital partners on this. We're working with our dis dispatch centers on this, uh, but certainly it is not appropriate to call uh, 911 to discharge a patient from the emergency department back home 
Um, and, uh, and the same goes for, for the vast majority of interfacility transports. So we're continuing to work on this, um, but keep reporting those as they come in so we have uh, a view of what is going on in the system. Thank you very much, and I'll hand it back to you, Jeff. Excellent. Thank you, Dr. Weston. And without further ado, uh, to dive right into our uh, topic du jour of birds, I will turn it over to our EMS fellows, Dr. Redovich and Dr. Drezic, uh, who are going to do their very best to keep it PJ-13 for us this month. So, uh, doctors, the floor is yours. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. We are excited to be chatting with you today about burns. This is Dr. Brandon Drezic. This is Nico Arendovich. And we will get right to it. Uh, today, like I said, we are going to be talking about burns. I got to say, I'm pretty excited to give this podcast. I get to finally tell a bunch of firefighters how to manage a burn patient. I tell you what, personally for me, I couldn't be a fireman. If I got to a house and it was fully on fire. F that. I quit. I just stand outside and watch it burn with everyone else. And the woman next to me would be like, please, my son, he's screaming in there. And I'd be like, yeah, well, he's probably on fire. That was Dane Cook circa 2004. If anyone remembers that from back in the day, I was in high school at the time, but I still have some recollection of these things. Now we'll open with a little bit of a case, a case that our crew saw about a month ago of a self-immolation, which is a fancy word of saying setting yourself on fire. This was uh, one of the crews they arrived on scene to find a guy that barricaded himself into a house, set himself on fire, was found to have 95% body uh, surface area burns. He, the crews quickly put out the fire. They transported him quickly, giving him good pain medication on the way, helping manage his airway. And he was actually able to survive long enough to be able to say goodbye to his family. And it's a reminder that what you guys do in the field is very important. With that, we'll begin with our initial evaluation of the burn patient. So I think initial evaluation for us is the thing we do bread and butter every day. And no matter what the injury, what the circumstance, we fall back on those A, B, Cs, airway, breathing, and, and circulation. We hammer this all the time and it's for good reason. I think initially when you look at the patient, you look how they appear, you look how they're breathing, you look at how they're doing overall and you take their vitals and you know, if everything looks okay initially, you might have a moment or two, but we know we got to focus on those first uh, core themes at the beginning. ABCs in these particular patients are going to be pretty complicated. This is going to require more frequent reevaluations as the injuries evolve and the patients begin to have swelling. When we look at our A's and B's, our airways and breathing, it can start pretty benign, but can rapidly turn into an absolute nightmare. High temperature air from the fires can cause excessive swelling of the airways, leading to the failed airway. You know, actually, it's worth noting that inhalation injury is the main cause of mortality um, in these burn patients, especially the ones that don't have burns all over their body. So airway is a big focus, whether or not you notice any other injuries. About 50% of patients that go to burn centers end up getting what's called acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a very, very severe lung disease. What are those clues we look for that might indicate someone has had some inhalation injury? Kind of hard to tell sometimes, especially in the early aspects, but you might see things like soot in their mouth or their nose, or if you see burned or singed nose hairs. Clearly, if the fire was hot enough and they were breathing hot enough air, it's starting to cause their hairs to burn. 
So those are some outside signs, things you see on the patient. How about in route or maybe even with our initial exam? What are other things that might indicate something is going to go south quickly? Well, when you kind of do your exam, you want to keep your eyes or at least your ears open for strider or changes in their voice. Some of them might develop some hoarseness. And of course, wheezing as these airway would become more inflamed with time. If any of these things happen, you need to get to the nearest hospital and fast. You know, these airways are nothing to mess around with. They do not have the normal anatomy. Even in the ED, we are not going to usually proceed first and foremost with your typical run-of-the-mill intubation. Generally, if I had a choice, I would be pulling out a fiber optic uh, scope so I could kind of snake my way through the airway, taking it slow and not paralyzing the patient, um, which really makes things a lot more complicated. So again, first and foremost, if that airway is compromised, really that comes first and really that patient just needs to go any ED as fast as possible to get that managed. Next thing, when we move on to our primary exam, we assess for circulation. This is hopefully not something you're going to see while you're in the field, but something to pay attention to the extremities. Sometimes when these burns happen, you can actually get swelling around the entire limb, and this will act as a tourniquet cutting off circulation, which is why it's still important to continue to check those pulses in all extremities. Now, beyond that, Beyond those individual extremities, of course, there are circumstances where you might get no circulation whatsoever. You know, your patient might be pulled from that fire, PNB, potentially due to inhalation injury, respiratory arrest, due to carbon monoxide, or maybe due to cyanide toxicity, especially if there are no immediate external signs of burns or trauma. So really what you need to think about is if this patient is pulseless, you need to think about, yes, those burns and the trauma, but also those respiratory causes, something inhaled that could have led to an arrhythmia or cardiac collapse. Now, before we get into the mainstay of some of the other management outside the primary exam, I think it's important that we suggest or we review the transport plans for these patients. Remember these things as we go along. As we just mentioned, airway trumps all. If this patient needs an airway managed, you need to do what you can in the field. Maybe you need to ventilate if they have completely lost it. Maybe, and you are, uh, you are intubation capable, maybe take a look, but really don't dwell on this. If their airway is compromised, they need to go to that closest ED, no matter where it is, to get that managed in a controlled setting. Afterwards, we look at trauma. Trauma trumps the burn center. You know this, so we're not going to harp too much on this. You know where our level one trauma center is. And then thirdly, burn centers. So you want to think about our burn center criteria. Here in OEM, we have several criteria that leads you to a destination of a burn criteria. What do these include, Dr. Arenovich? So these you'll find mostly in your OEM guidelines, but to review them, these are partial thickness burns with greater than 10% of their total body surface area. And if you had to measure that, consider the size of your palm is 1%. Two, burns that involve the face, the hands, the feet, or the genitals, the perineum, which is the groin area, or any major joints as swelling to those areas may require specialists. Third degree burns or full thickness burns as we've slowly changed the descriptions of these but burns that encompass all layers of the skin and often you can see bone or other tissue underneath. Electrical burns, those include lightning-based injuries or high energy sources. 
chemical burns, which will be mostly dictated by some of our hazmat teams, inhalation injuries, which we talked about earlier, and then burn injuries in patients with pre-existing medical disorders that could complicate the management, prolong recovery, or affect mortality. And so these are going to be patients with severe heart failure. And the reason why we'll, we, those people are of a special interest, we'll talk about in a little bit. And remember, PEDS goes to children's. So just to recap, because this is a decision tree, if they have an airway issue, do not pass go, do not collect $200. The patient needs to go to the closest ED. If that, their airway is stable and they have trauma, they have signs of things that need stabilization, you get them to the trauma center. If they are okay from a traumatic perspective, but have those burn criteria, they go to the burn center and then children go to children's. So let's talk a little bit more about the management in a little bit more detail. The first thing I want to talk about is pain. My guess is it hurts a lot. I spilled coffee on my hand this morning and was asking for Dilaudid from my wife. She had no idea what I was talking about. She has no idea what Dilaudid is. She's not in medicine. I don't know why I said that. When you look at your guidelines, you have two primary options, ketamine and fentanyl. There's not really a wrong answer here. If it looks bad and looks uncomfortable, treat accordingly. If you're worried about hypotension in these cases, maybe avoid the fentanyl and use a little bit more ketamine. How about their wounds? So they're pulled from a fire, they have burns. Of course, we wanna look at, we wanna see how extensive they are, but first and foremost, you wanna prevent excessive fluid loss and you want to prevent hypothermia excessive heat loss. You want to strip the patient. You want to get an idea of what's underneath so you can really determine the extent of their injury and get those contaminated clothing, especially if it's a chemical burn, off the patient before it does any more damage. You want to get jewelry off the fingers before swelling starts. And then after you expose the patient, take a look, you want to manage. Generally, Initially, in our pre-hospital environment, we're going to recommend covering those areas with moist gauze and then covering the entire patient with a blanket to keep them warm afterwards. Of course, there is something to be said about those minor injuries. I've burned myself on my hand before pulling something out of the oven. And for those, fine. Put them under the faucet. Anytime within that first 30 minute after the injury can really help prevent progression. No ice, creams, or ointments. So let's talk about the wild and wonderful world of fluid management in these patients. This is always a point of contention and something that no one actually agrees on. Historically, in previous guidelines, you might've heard something called the Parkland formula, which was four times the total body surface area percentage times the weight or something like that. And the whole idea behind limiting this is to prevent overhydrating the patient in which can lead to work worse outcomes. And so this harkens back to that heart failure patient. We know these people are generally fluid overloaded. What can happen in the burn patient is that overhydrating these people, giving them too much fluid can actually lead to worse outcomes and something called an escherotomy, which we'll talk about shortly. Thankfully for us in Milwaukee, we're never too far away from the hospital. So honestly, if you can just start the fluids wide open, that'll be suffice. And the wide open bolus up to 20 mils per kilo in the OEM guidelines. Now, going back to that airway, you want to think about oxygen. 
You want to consider early administration of oxygen, at least non-rebreather, maybe positive pressure with some CPAP. And yes, I say non-rebreather. And I know sometimes we get a little bit of a hard time from hospitals. They think, okay, you applied O2. Did this patient really need it? Um, you know, they're in a circumstance where they have much more monitoring. Here, we want to do what's right for the patient. We just want to hook them up. And the reason for that is underneath with these inhalation injuries, there can be carbon monoxide toxicity. There can be cyanide poisoning. They go hand in hand. They go have similar symptoms and really there is no way to know. So you want to flush their respiratory tract with all that oxygen. Both of these bind to hemoglobin, making the blood not able to deliver oxygen. It's kind of bad when you can't deliver oxygen, but to do what we can, we want to flood those lungs with oxygen so they can carry whatever they can. Let's talk a little bit about the unstables, the ultra critically ill patients coming from these cases. Now, when it comes to fluids, we talked a little bit more about maybe gentle fluid resuscitation, maybe just opening it wide open. In these cases, if they're hypotensive, just keep it wide open. If they continue to be hypotensive, there's a lot of data and a lot of research out there that shows starting presses on these people as needed could be beneficial. So there's another thing to think about for these unstable patients. Of course, we know how to manage the day-to-day -day, uh, patient who is unstable, but pulled from a fire, if they are unstable, especially again, if they don't have those signs of trauma, we are thinking that inhalation injury, we are thinking the carbon monoxide, and we are thinking about cyanide poisoning. So. If you want to think about cyanide poisoning, some of us, uh, especially those here in Milwaukee County, um, Milwaukee Fire still has access to the cyanokits, the hydroxycobalamin. This is just B12, but B12 is a vitamin and it is the antidote for cyanide poisoning. With Milwaukee Fire, it should be on the bat chief uh, vehicles. You should have access to those when you are on scene at a fire. And if you're the one who's going to be using this, we know we don't use it every day. Now is a really good time to familiarize yourself with how to mix it, how to administer it, and the fact that it's really not very com compatible with any other medication. We don't use it day to day, but in a crisis situation, we might. So it's always good to have that mental rehearsal. When do we think about using this, Dr. Arenovich? You know, we really don't think about cyanide poisoning. When we think about it, we think about historic old World War II movies or stories regarding. But traditionally, the use of the cyanokit was emphasized for house fires. Really, so many modern products actually burn off cyanide gas these days, plastics, wool, and silk. So you really should consider it in those particular situations. If you have a person that's pulled from a fire who is PNB and now with ROS, especially if the burns are minimal and so inhalation might play a larger role, really consider busting out the cyano kit. If you pull someone from a fire who's hemodynamic instability or having arrhythmias, really consider busting out the cyano kit. And if you have someone you've pulled from a fire who's altered, consider using the cyano kit. So what I hear you saying here is we really got to think about cyanide in any of these unstable patients, these post-rocks patients, the patients that are profoundly altered and we don't have another good explanation for. Um, Absolutely. And if you're ever having a concern with it, you can always call your friendly online medical control physician if you want to hash this out in real time.
So what happens when these patients get to the hospital? Well, these patients are regularly going to be treated just like any normal trauma patient. We'll redo a lot of the A, Bs, and Cs to see if anything's changed. What starts to get different is there's a lot of specialty care that goes into wound management as there's incredibly high rates of infection. We don't think about it very frequently, but our skin is the ultimate armor to the outside environment. So our skin prevents us from getting sick, bacteria from growing into our bodies. And once we've broken this down, it's very easy to get these infections. We also talk about that careful fluid administration because it's important to prevent too much swelling in the future. This can actually lead to compartment-like syndromes from too much swelling of the skin. And they'll start generally calculating the fluid needs by the urine output. In cases where they get so bad, and you've heard me harp on compartment syndromes at least three or four times in the past since I've started this, that swelling on your chest will actually cause a compartment syndrome on the rest of your body, leading you to have difficulty breathing. And this is where they have something called the escherotomy. If you ever get the chance to Google this, I highly recommend it because essentially what they do is fillet the skin to allow, it to, to allow the body to swell more as well as take deeper breaths. And of course, there is something to be said for going back and remembering self-care is incredibly important here. We can't do a great job of taking care of our communities if we don't do a good job of taking care of ourselves. So always remember, you get home, get home to your firehouse, you clean yourself up, you get that soot off, and you know you really work on uh, recentering yourself and decontamination. So in, to recap all of this, remember to trust your ABCs. And then remember in transport, airway trumps trauma, which trumps burns, and children go to the children's hospital. Pay close attention to that airway. Give the patient oxygen by non-rebreather or CPAP. Just do it, especially if you notice soot around the mouth or nose or notice irregular breathing sounds. Give fluids. Start it wide open. We'll worry about the titration when they get to the hospital since it's never too far away. Make sure to strip and fully assess the patient. Then cover those burns with wet dressings. Cover the patient with blankets to keep them warm. Treat that pain. Use fentanyl if you can, if their pressures can hold it. Consider ketamine if they're in bad shape too. And if they're unstable, if they're PNB with ROSC, again, give your fluids for burns, double check, make sure your oxygen is hooked up, assess the airway for inhalation injury, and consider that hydroxycobalamin or that cyanocate if you can get your hands on it. Remember, that's for post-ROSC, unstable and arrhythmia, arrhythmias, altered mental status, or per the recommendations of online medical control. And remember, you're going to be transporting fast, but you're going to be transporting safe. I thank everybody for taking the time out today to come chat with us. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions for future podcasts, please feel to reach out EMS education at milwaukeecountywi.gov, and we'll be happy to be in touch. Thanks, everyone. Till next month.